Good evening. Um, one of the joys of having been a journalist in Northern Ireland for 20 years, it's actually 2000, the year 2000 that I joined the Belfast Telegraph, is that I've seen, ended up in almost every part of Northern Ireland from Crossing Glen to, to, to Castle Rock. I can think of the places I've never been to. I've never been to Stravan, I've never been to Limavady, and I realised today I've never been to Ben Burr. And it's a, it's a glorious uh, looking village, um, and, and obviously has a fascinating history. And I'm honoured to be here with Professor O'Leary um, to talk to him about his, uh, mainly about his work, and as um, uh, Professor McKenna was saying, um, I do come at some of these from a, I don't know what I'd like to say from a different perspective to you, but certainly from people who think that Northern Ireland shouldn't have existed. What I wanted to start by asking was about your background, because when I think of my own life, born in 1971 in the United States, my parents were from here, came back in 1974. I'm fortunate in the way, the journey back was when I was two, I hadn't yet turned three. I'm able to pinpoint my first memories in life, and um, I'm able to pinpoint memories of Belfast. And my father moved in 1975, he stopped to be a, um, in one hospital to another at the Royal. So I remember, and something I can pinpoint to 1975 is, is soldiers stopping dad um, going into the Royal. I knew it must have been 75 because he never was in that office after then. And when I think about the hunger strikes 1981, I'm asking my mum when, um, when the hunger strikes ended and I was 10, um, does this mean the troubles are over? My mum said, um, in, in the way that adults do, I now realise a long-winded way of saying no. She didn't want to upset the child, but she was basically saying that. And when I think about our neighbours in Bangor, who were a Catholic family, and I didn't know what Catholic meant, I didn't know why when 1979 they were going to see the Pope we weren't going to see this superstar who was getting off a jumbo jet, no, no less, and kissing the ground. When I think of all this and how it shapes my view of the world, um, and not knowing that I, my background was Protestant until I was 14, long after the book came, I'm interested in your background, I, the Nigerian connection, having gone to a primary school um, that was mostly Protestant, I think, entirely Protestant. Can you tell us a little bit about that before I ask about it? Sure, Ben. Good evening, and thanks to the Priory and to the Royal Irish Academy. I was born in Cork in 1958, so I'm a little older than you, distinctly older. Uh, I was taken to Nigeria at the age of 13 months, and uh, the Nigerian Civil War more or less broke out in our backyard. We were living in Kaduna in northern Nigeria. And as those of you who know the history of that place, there were pogroms uh, of uh, House of Fulani against Igbos in this northern city. And my parents decided it would be a good idea to leave northern Nigeria for Northern Ireland. And they made this decision, location, 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 in May 1968 to purchase a house in Carrickfergus. But we had a trial run for living in Northern Ireland by um, the midsummer of '66, when we went to a little village called Clotty in the Ards Peninsula. And my mother, being a, a liberal Catholic, sent us to the local school with no consciousness of um, what was then current Northern Irish behaviour. So we went, as I discovered, to a Protestant school. My distinct memory was being in a line with my sister and the very kindly headmaster, a man called James Wilson, the Presbyterian, marvellous uh, teacher of history. 
he was asking each student their name and their religion, because he had to record it. And it came to me, and I, I turned to my sister. I then had a very English accent, because I'd grown up with English kids in northern Nigeria. And I said, I don't know, Mary, but I think we're Roman Catholics. <laughs> and there was complete silence. <laughs> the headmaster was very kindly. And my introduction to Northern Ireland was I had to fight every boy of my own height or just a little bit above or below before I was accepted. Now, of course, that ritual of boys fighting boys occurs independently of sectarian contexts. But I remember it with that. And I, I wasn't aware in any distinct sense that I was a Catholic, particularly a Northern Catholic, until that moment. I know you've been exposed in front of the peoples, but... Uh, were they otherwise aware of you? Did they think of you? Did they make things difficult for you because you work out? After a while, um, I felt fully integrated into the school. There was one exception. Uh, one pupil was a bully. Uh, there are plenty of bullies in, in all schools. Uh, and he, um, as I recall, if I recall correctly, would get the local orange marching band to stop just outside our house and increase the beating of the drums. Um, now, of course, this is 66, 67, before anything gets uh, truly malevolent. He referred to my sister and myself as venient earwigs. So I didn't know what a venient was, and I didn't know what an earwig was. Uh, and I, I, I looked it up, and apparently, uh, as part of my research, uh, earwig is some kind of Scots, Ulster Scots term for somebody who's a snoop, who's listening in. So I was accused of being a spy and a Republican at a very early age. But it was, I think, just standard childhood abuse. It did not mark me seriously. And what age do you move on from there? Uh, Geographically we, My parents chose a house in Carrickfergus, which is not the obvious choice for Catholics to, to pick. Well, Quite the was yeah. so. they, they chose that because the, uh, Carrickfergus was then uh, the first place in Northern Ireland to have oil-fired central heating. So just look at those two parental decisions. One civil war to another, and then they choose oil just before the oil price rises. So they, they uh, land themselves with a the northern home they can't afford to leave, in which the energy costs are ridiculous. So I, I'm an accidental northerner. And, and it was only when I was now that I began to think, why did my parents leave a paradise of a life in, in 1971 in America, whereas my dad said the oil crisis, talking about oil, um, was their idea of hardship, that you might have to keep going to um, a petrol station to come back to Northern Ireland, uh, what seemed like the height of the troubles. And out of interest, the answer was that in 74 it seemed like it had been solved because of Sun and Dale. Um, the treaties, treaties, treat, treat, I'm not sure of the pronunciation, um, treaties, um, what, the, what is the genesis of that? This? How long, how, I mean, it, it, it's the combination of a life's work, really, is, is, that, is that right? It is. It, it's partly accidental, though. No publisher today would give a professor of political science a contract to write a three-volume work. They know that that's a recipe for a commercial failure. So I had a contract to write a book about the Good Friday Agreement, and the idea was that Roughly five years after implementation, it would be an appropriate moment uh, to write a book about the Friday Agreement. So I started doing that, but I kept postponing the final uh, moment. And at the same time, I started going back in um, 
Irish history. I'd always been reading Irish history from the age of um, maybe 12, 13 in a school called Garantara that I went to in, in County Antrim. And I decided I would, for the first time, absolutely thoroughly read uh, the historiography of early modern Ireland. And I would read it as a political scientist and with my own distinct angle of vision, but I would try as much as possible to respect historical conventions, to be objective. If one side committed an atrocity, I'd make sure I reported it. If another did a counter-atrocity, I would report it. Um, and my idea was to my publisher, look, I'm going to do a pre-history of the conflict, and I might get that finished before the successful implementation of the Good Friday Agreement. And he nodded and agreed. Um, he had already given me a contract to revise a previous book that I had. And that was, that's basically the middle one, the short one. That's the revised book. That's what he wanted. Uh, I ended up giving him this. That's marketing on my part. I'm pleased to report, despite its magnitude, it's broken even. From now on, it's not all profit or wealth, but it's not a loss-making enterprise. Um, and as I have begun to commentate more, by the way, I, in my own role, I, um, I never did any commentary before I became deputy editor when I was reporting and when I was a news editor, wasn't appropriate. But one of the reasons I moved into commentary and started to defend the unionist position a lot is that I, I, feel, I feel it isn't defended, um, sometimes, um, perhaps, and uh, laterally. Um, and the Craig quote that you, what I was just leaving through, through there to, 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 to cite, uh, which I'm glad you put in this context where he talks about um, a Catholic uh, Ireland. Um, and I don't want to misquote it because you talk about being misquoted because I will misquote it myself. That's why I was trying to get it. Uh, very, very, I don't have it off the top of my head. It's thrown back at me all the time. Um, as is the Northern Ireland is um, a, um, a putrid sectarian statelet um, and so on. Um, and I'm wondering what you think because I think it's fair to say that your book is you know, pretty critical of um, <coughs> right the way through to the conduct of the DUP and um, to the earliest unionism, um, to, the, to the gun running pre, pre the existence of Northern Ireland. I wonder, and, and you make the, the, the important point in the book, of course, that Northern Ireland isn't a state, that the Republic of Ireland is a state, the United Kingdom is a state. I'm wondering what you make of that assessment of the putrid sectarian statehood. It obviously isn't just historically a putrid sectarian statement, but it did become one. It didn't have to be that way. In 1920, when it was formed, uh, the Ulster Unionist Party was master of all it surveyed. Within five years, it had put down Republican insurrection. It had disorganized its political opponents. It had an opportunity, if it, if it so wished, to accommodate its minority successfully. Instead, I think, it partly found itself in an institutional trap. Northern Ireland was a, a miniature version of the Westminster system of government. Winner-takes-all electoral system. Eventually, the Ulster Unionists chose to reimpose a full miniature version of the British model, whereas initially there had been proportional representation. And I think they got in the trap of being a dominant party. How do you preserve yourself as a dominant? One answer is you make sure that the opposition is perpetually disorganized and you make sure that your governing party is organized. 
So the overwhelming priority of the Austrian Unionist Party, I think it's fair to say, from mid-1925 is to prevent breakaways, to prevent any faction, whether it be Labourist or ultra-Protestant, from breaking away from the core party. And it then, over time, becomes progressively incapable of reforming itself. So even though by the mid-1960s there were reformers within their ranks, they had built a system which essentially depended upon reproducing historic colonial relations in which the those who descended from the historically dominant Protestant population prevailed in terms of citizenship over the native and predominantly Catholic population. It didn't have to be that way if greater courage had been displayed by the earlier, earliest Unionist leadership. It might have moved in another direction. Now, of course, they confronted uh, a nationalist population with, that was deeply unhappy with the mere formation of Northern Ireland. So, they were both uh, symbiotically uh, locked in a trap. And I want to say in an important sense, and this is a kind of structuralist perspective, not everything that went wrong in Northern Ireland can ever legitimately be blamed on either party inside Northern Ireland. Because the structure that was set up there was a byproduct of the failure of the British state to reconcile Ireland as a whole to the Union. So we get the formation of two separate sovereign states. Northern Ireland is the residue of their unresolved conflict. And for their own distinct reasons, they both uh, disconnect from responsibility from what's for what's happening inside Northern Ireland. But the greater onus of responsibility for fairness, for fair administration, which Craig promised to Lord George, I know you read the book, uh, in 1990, that did not materialise. And there was an opportunity for had the Unionist Party successfully governed with uh, absolutely minimal discrimination, a large portion of the Catholic population would have been contented Unionists, not overtly Unionist, and there would have been much less need to reform Northern Ireland by the 1960s. And who knows, we could have had a, a stable settlement of the Union, but it was not to be. Fascinating. Um, Going back to the, the, the Craig quote, and it is... So for those of you who need uh, reminders, um, it is often said that Craig said that no, uh, we, we have a Protestant parliament for Protestant people. It is frequently forgotten that he said that in response to de Valera describing the South as a Catholic state for a Catholic people. So it was an indirect repository. And we are, we are proudly sectarian because they are proudly sectarian. Um, and so what happens is that when some of us defend this on, 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 on social media, um, it's thrown back that you're defending a Protestant state for a Protestant um, people, that that's what Craig said, and they don't get the context. But one of the, I don't even get into these fights, but one of the, if I was to get into the fight, I would say this, well, hold on. What if you got into a water battery? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, what, what about the argument, I'm wondering what you think about this. Um, obviously, there have been thinking of, of some sort of different arrangement for Northern Ireland, as you explained, and thinking about whether the nine counties, I think Craig says something along the lines of, um, we admit quite candidly, we cannot hold the nine counties. Um, is it not a, an obviously sensible solution to an intractable problem that the counties that happen to be closest to Scotland, because of the plantation, um, that are most uh, Protestant, the correlation between Protestant and 
Catholicism and, and, and the, the constitutional question is divided, um, if not the way it is, if it's four counties or six or seven, it ended up being six, and of course, I think two, at least one of them had a Catholic majority. Is it not actually quite a sensible um, solution? And I, maybe you've already answered that in a bit in your last question when you say that they could have done things better and the state could have worked quite well. The, the, the issue of partition is, is fascinating and grim. It has been a, a British recipe applied particularly in Palestine, in India, and in Northern Ireland. And arguably, it was least productive of ferocious violence in Northern Ireland. One of the reasons the British proposed partition in Palestine and in India and went along with it was because they thought the partition of Northern Ireland from Ireland had been a success. Now, I know that might be an absurd uh, perspective for many of you to think uh, that that was the case, but that is actually what they believe. I read papers in which they think of Ireland as a successful example of partition. And partitionist reasoning is very straightforward. If you have deeply divided people who are communally distinct, have separate educational systems, separate religions, separate myths of origin, surely they should have separate states. Well, if you take that logic seriously, then you have to make damn sure that the partition is as just and fair as possible. Now, if we think about the partition of, of Ireland, it was not fair. Um, two counties, Fermanagh and Tyrone, the one we're in, uh, had manifest Catholic and uh, uh, nationalist majorities. They chose to make their reasoning on the basis of the 1911 census not uh, a new census. They did not use electoral units, which they could have. They could have chosen either local government uh, districts. They could have used poor law districts. They could have used electoral districts for the Westminster Parliament to define a border that would have been much more clearly separating the two communities and producing uh, more homogeneous units on either side. So you can, you, your first argument on partition is you could have done a better surgery. But then when you think about that and look at the experience of India, Bengal was amazingly justly partitioned. West Bengal had a, a Muslim population of one-third. Bangladesh, as it became, had a Hindu population of one-third. The distribution of the land was 66% on each side of the arable productive land. From a point of view of impartial justice and outsider imposing a just partition, that was a remarkably fair one. It didn't stop horrendous violence. So in my view, the experience of all partitions is that they uh, create a fresh cut that did not exist before. <coughs> that is particularly dramatically negative for the communities around the particular uh, new border. And it sets in train uh, a security dilemma, as the pompous term used by political scientists, fear of your neighbor, because the, the state structures are changing, the sources of legal and political authority and policing authority are shifting, and people rely on their own. And the militias will form, because facts have to be established on the ground in the light of the partition coming. And we had a small-scale version of that compared to what's happened elsewhere in the 20th century. So I would say that the lesson is 
try to make power sharing arrangements work rather than go for partition. Partition works in only one circumstance in my view, and that is when you have legally agreed secession, which is not the same thing as partition. A secession is the departure of a recognized entity that is considered an equal, that is integrated into a political system, and because it exists as a predefined unit, and because people know where it is, and there's no debate about uh, the internal sovereignty of that unit, a secession can be accomplished peacefully. It doesn't have to be accomplished peacefully, but it's possible. There are no successful peaceful partitions in the 20th century. So uh, my initial thoughts, partly resembling yours, were maybe there had to be a partition. And if so, the principal complaint of Irish nationalists, a just one, was that it was an unjust partition. But by more mature adult viewers, partitions should be avoided at all costs. They're intensely destabilizing and unlikely to work. And what they, what they can set in place is uh, a truly negative dynamic. If we look at India and Pakistan today, they've had four, I think, four wars since partition. We have been relatively calm in contrast. The Republic of Ireland has not overtly ever engaged in war with the North, nor vice versa. Uh, so we have the calmest version of a partition among the major ones of the 20th century. But I don't think we should draw the conclusion that it was a good idea. I'm interested by product not being flippant here because it's essentially irrelevant, but it is intriguing to me as a journalist. I'm often trying to find out whether Ben Burr is in County Tyrone, or whether I was astonished. Uh, I was astonished that Moira, having grown up in County Down, I didn't know until probably my forties that Moira was in County Down. Anyways, um, and you actually can't find now. Um, if you get maps, if you buy maps, and I'm a big map person, um, they sometimes have the local district authorities and don't even have the county lines. Um, uh, you have to go to Google or something to find out. For, for, to find out. So. It, 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 it's a somewhat trivial point, but at least by keeping counties intact, you can see that there was a logic to that. Um, there was, but there was a unit called Ulster. Yes. And had that unit been given autonomy, either under Irish Home Rule or preserved as a separate entity inside the UK, you would have had an equal, roughly equal balance of population. You would not have been creating an absolutely novel, fresh, sovereign border, and therefore the logic of relations between the groups would have been different. I think the fundamental issue here is that Craig put it, quite frankly, in, in something that you've read, uh, if we secure the six counties, we will have an impregnable pale behind which we can uh, re-fortify ourselves. So the vision was, we're going to hold on as much as we can control, we have to abandon the three other counties of Ulster where we have a significant number of our co-religionists and, and co-unionists. But we will do we will abandon that in order to secure the stability of Northern Ireland. And in fact, they did give themselves a certain stability based on a two-to-one demographic ratio. As we all know, that is now progressively disappearing. It's interesting that, um, uh, in a sense, you could say that, I'm sure... I don't want to misrepresent you, Mary, Mary Lou MacDonald is perhaps giving a justification for the argument that I make that Northern Ireland have been uh, a necessary um, thing uh, when she talks about uh, 
Conroe, having been Conroe. And um, my father, who lived in uh, Dublin in the 1950s, um, uh, and who's now um, very relaxed about Irish unity because he's seen the radical changes and he remembers the, the rule of um, Archbishop John Charles McQuay. Um, and now, with my, visiting my nephews in, in the Republic, he um, uh, in, in, in South Dublin, is um, nipping um, up and down in his car. He, he, he um, uh, just thinks it's so changed that it really doesn't matter. But um, could, could I just respond yeah. to that, if you don't mind? So we, we all know the famous statement by James Connolly. He predicted, and I'm not endorsing all of Connolly's politics, but he predicted that partition would cause the carnival of the reaction. And in effect, that's what we got. We got two very conservative political units on both sides of the, uh, the new border. The southern state began life disconnected from the industrial heartland of the Belfast and the Lagan Valley. It began life with a civil war, and its more socially conservative side won. And that led absolutely to the entrenchment of a, a very strong form of authoritarian Catholicism. Imagine the counter experiment that either there is a unified island under home rule, or a unified island as a dominion, or a unified island as a republic. Then there would not have been, that there would have remained uh, some serious prospect of a unified trade union movement. There would have been a secular bourgeoisie on each side of the border interested in uh, diminishing the power of all reactionary religious forces. There would have been a better prospect of early pluralism on both sides of the border. So I, I think one can be, uh, it, it's important to engage in counterfactual thought. And if you do, uh, I, I think maintaining some kind of unified island would not have been a, a catastrophic idea. Another thing that I want to ask you about is, is another criticism that, that, that uh, one gets very much when defense unionism, um, of sectarianism and the, the ease with which the word bigot is used. Um, I'm impervious to it now. It, kind of, it actually, in, if anything, emboldens, since you're going to be accused of being a bigot anyway, um, makes one even more blunt. But I think that one of the things that does strike me, and it is a criticism that is, that is not often made, I, I have heard it made, of nationalists, of, 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 of northern Catholics, is the criticism that you address in the book. Um, uh, of, uh, not directly, I don't think necessarily quote anybody making criticism of detaching itself of, um, um, you know, holding on to the educational system, you explain the reasons and the funding um, disadvantages. Um, and I, again, I'm struck, I come back to this point where I say that I didn't know that I was Protestant until I was 14 and started to get into politics. My parents just didn't tell me, it wasn't on the radar, uh, as is very common for, for children born today, it seems to me. But this is so common in, in, in the background I have of North Down, which is highly atypical, I realize that, right. and uh, middle classes, which again is itself atypical. It's obviously not the experience of a Protestant growing up in a loyalist estate. My sense is that it is, it is it, even amongst the middle classes, was a less typical um, experience of Ulster Catholics um, to, to not know although you, you didn't when you went to that school, so maybe I'm wrong about this. Um, but it does bother me that, that, that Father Alec Reed, uh, um, Mary McAleese, both, I think, apologised for comparisons that they made to Germany and this being indoctrinated into children. It 
simply isn't my experience of it being indoctrinated into children that you're present, even though I'm only talking about section of Protestantism. And I'm wondering whether what you think about that, since you've so closely studied sectarian, you know, right. a lot of things including sectarianism in Protestants. So, parallel educational systems, state-funded, precede partition. And what happens at partition in the north is, in effect, a removal of equal funding of both systems. Uh, and a, a brief effort by Lord Londonderry to promote integrated education, which is not enthusiastically received, particularly by evangelical and non-Anglican <coughs> clergy. And, in effect, the liberal unionist elite surrenders to their base and has uh, perpetuates a form of discriminatory funding of parallel education systems. There is no project to integrate everybody into the same system. So if you can put yourselves put yourself into the thought process of nationalists and Catholics in the early 1920s, all they wanted was the model that already existed in Scotland and the model that existed in Ontario, two British-governed places with uh, distinct possibilities of conflict between Catholics and Protestants. But Northern Ireland was the only one in which there wasn't equal funding of the systems. Had there been earlier equal funding, less resentment, maybe it would have been possible for an organic growth of integrated systems. Instead, Catholics um, regarded their schools as the only institution that they controlled. And they paid for it. They had a double burden. They paid in taxation towards general education, and then they paid towards their own capital funding of their schooling. And one of the results of this, of course, was that they were materially disadvantaged. Um, and, 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 and fascinating, but a potential problem with, with well, you're not saying what would have happened otherwise, but um, a potential problem with that theory is that for, let us say, um, for decades now, there has been um, you know, very good... Um, Funding for, for equal, equal funding doesn't officially happen until 1992. So we've had uh, roughly uh, 8 and 90. We're into the third decade of the experiment. And one of the interesting consequences, and I, I do not have a good explanation for this, is we, we see now that Catholics in general outperform Protestants, cultural Protestants, in uh, the highest uh, performing positions at A level. And more Catholics go on to university. And at the lower tier, um, because Northern Ireland still has this selective education system, uh, people do very badly in both communities. So we can see that one consequence of equal funding is the rapid construction of a more successful Catholic bourgeoisie, which should have meant from the point of view of unionists, a more contented Catholic population willing to be pro-union, willing to have the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement work. Um, and that's also fascinating. I, I was maybe this will come up in, in questions. I was um, thinking about is there, in addition to all of these things, a separatism in, in Catholicism. For example, it's thrown back in my face. This. Um, uh, um, uh, there's going to be a Catholic majority, there's going to be a demographic change. Nobody, generally, people don't say there's going to be a Catholic majority. They say demographic change. Face it, face it, unionists, face it. 
uh, hold on a minute, what are you saying? That, that Catholics are tribal and are going to necessarily look for our But I think that will come up in a, in a, there's a lot to get through here, sure. and this is fascinating stuff. One thing about Northern Ireland reforming itself, I'll give two anecdotes. Um, I serialised that the newsletter, as you mentioned, I think, is the, or Mary and I mentioned, is the oldest English language daily newspaper in the world. It's 50 years older than the Times, so 1785, 50 years older than the RIA, um, and I serialised all the newsletters from 1738, 1739. I had a peculiar incident where I sort of time travelled in a way. Um, I was totally immersed in the 1730s. Um, I spent nine months serialising the 1738-1739 papers. I had a very good, rough idea of how they lived, pretty clear idea of how they lived, how they travelled, what they talked about, kind of things they did. And suddenly I was projected forward 50 years. I was rushing over to the Linden Hall Library to check a 1738 paper. And I suddenly saw a 1786 paper. Now, had you asked me a few years before I'd done that, the difference between the 1730s and 1780s, I'd have been struggling. They're both before the Industrial Revolution, there's some. The 1738 of North of Ireland, because there is no Northern Ireland, is a, I did think when I was reading it, this must be an uncomfortable thing to read if you are of a Catholic background, because it's very Protestant names, Scottish names, lots of Johnstons, lots of that, not many Gaelic names. And, and then when I suddenly saw the 1786 paper, I went, wow! Um, I didn't study it long enough to see whether there was a, an increase in Gaelic names. There probably wasn't. But I saw other things. There's a dining club in Hillsborough. There's violin lessons. There's nothing like this in the 70s. My point is that society reforming itself so that um, in the 1730s, virtually all the rentals are off aristocrats. Um, by the 1780s, things were changing very fast. So um, you make a fascinating point. My, that is contrary to what I'm saying. 1780s, 1850s, whatever. More and more people getting wealthy. Belfast becoming big. Emergence of a Catholic um, managerial class. You have some statistics from the early 1900s. And then a lot of this would have changed itself. So that when you go to my father's medical year, which was 1963 in Queens, I was so intrigued by the statistic that you cite, which is that Queens in 1961 was 22% Catholic. And by 19... Um, very shortly thereafter, um, late 60s, probably early 70s, I think mean, you say it's, it's 30, 32%, almost in line with the population. My dad asked in his medical year for the background. He didn't really know, but he said it was about 20% Catholic background, about 20% overseas, and about 60% um, Protestant background. So if you divide the Northern Irish people in his medical year, it's about 25% Catholic and about 75% Protestant. It's not that far short of... Um, what you would expect. These are people mostly born in the late 1930s. He's older than that. Um, so I, my, coming back to my point that with grammar schools and all sorts of things, the emergence of a middle class, it's happening in France, it's happening everywhere. Inevitably, Catholics are going to, unless you do have an apartheid state, and you reject that analogy early in your book, um, yeah, the extent you don't. I, I don't. Yeah, I thought you did. No, I, I, thought, I thought you said that it was. I, I thought you said that it was something like it wasn't as as bad as... I, I certainly say that. Yeah. It should not be compared in the um, degree of marginalisation and exclusion of the minority yeah. or the subordinate group to what occurred in the deep south of the US and in South Africa, which are the rhetorical excesses that nationalists have used. Mm. But the idea of enforced differentiation and segregation and discrimination and policies intended to unify the dominant group and disorganise uh, the 
dominated group. That is characteristic of all of these three systems, slavery, apartheid, and institutionalized sectarian discrimination. Uh, and the motion, the, it's not separate and equal, it's separate but unequal. But I'd rather go back to your, you started with a very interesting historical moment in the 1730s. May I go there? Yeah, I did. And, before, and I'll summarize it for the audience before you go there. So what I'm trying to say is that from the 1700s to the 19th, imagine there had been, you know, everything. There had been no change. There had been no restraints put on the Stormy government. Potentially, potentially, over 300 years, you would have a system that would have radically reformed itself unless you were actually stopping Catholics going to grammar schools, unless you were actually stopping those things. And I'm saying the absence of that level of repression would have led to maybe not the, the society that we have today, which is extraordinarily equal. It's not entirely equal, depending on different sure. measurements. And that's what I'm getting at. Okay, well, reforming let's, itself. Yes, but let's go back to the 1730s, which is immediately after the 1720s. We can agree on that. <laughs> that, that decade is very important in the history of this place because you get large-scale Presbyterian migration to the United States. And that's a decisive moment because it ends what looks, if you look at the demographic record, if you look at the institutional facts, you would have predicted in 1715 that Ulster is going to be Protestantized and Britified to 95%, 80%. That was the trajectory. And then you get a very, very significant Presbyterian migration to the United States. And that migration is decisive for the history of this part of the island because it means the Protestants are never going to be an overwhelming majority in this part of the island. And that happens partly because of Anglican maltreatment of Protestants. Um, the Anglicans are then in their supreme moment of dominance and they're not inclined to be kind either to Catholics or to dissentients within their own ranks. Those are not the only reasons why Presbyterians migrated to the United States, but that's a decisive shaping factor in, in the, the long-run history of the island. What you're basically arguing, I think, but correct me if I'm wrong, is that there were social mobility opportunities for Catholics at various junctures in the history of the island. And there were not always, and, and this is true, formal barriers to mobility. There were, of course, formal barriers to mobility. There were um, penal laws. And the legacies of those penal laws are very important because we can see when we do comparative analysis, when we look at the uh, life chances of Catholics and Protestants, when they emigrate to the United States, to Australia, to South Africa, the differences in performance economically are trivial, but they're much deeper back on this island. So there's something that explains that. And for me, it's straightforward. It's the colonial and hierarchical relationships established between the the two communities, as a result of four major conquests and reconquests, and the levels of insecurity generated on the island. And it looked, and this is what the, the connection in your, your head seemed to be, look, in the 1960s, there were social mobility opportunities. Catholics went to grammar schools, a reform that was a byproduct of the British system, not introduced locally, where scholarships could apply, people of Catholic and Protestant origin could all through the 11 plus go to grammar schools. 
And as we know, that generated a, a cadre of people in the civil rights movement uh, who wanted to be treated as equal citizens. And that was an opportunity for reform. So if you do get bursts of social mobility, and that did happen in Ireland before 1798, uh, and you have again in, in the north in the 1960s, the question is, how does a regime respond to a group that wants to be treated as equal? And it's a painful dilemma. If they reform quickly, they destabilize their own social basis of support. If they resist, they encourage the upwardly mobile group to become revolutionary. So I'm not saying there are easy answers, but I, I don't think one can portray a story of uh, <coughs> Catholic unreasonableness. What, what, I, what, I, what I, I'm not saying, by the way, to, to be clear about this, I, I, I would never dispute the capacity of any group to be incompetent and for unionists to, as well as other people, to have done stupid, uh, really stupid things. That's not what I'm disputing. What I'm disputing is that society is being so complex, particularly when you see the changes between the 1730s and 1980s, let alone uh, what's happening after the Industrial Revolution, let alone umpteen things, the massive change in the newsletters from 1968 when we have just our photographs and, and, and sport and beginning to appear on the front page with George Best, that a society changing that rapidly even with the boneheads at the top, would have massive opportunities for conflicts, and that a lot of things um, help themselves unless you get into, we couldn't go into this all night, an, an apartheid targeted, um, we are keeping you down system. And I, I'm saying that. that, that we, we know from the, ben, we know from the archives in the 1960s that O'Neill is sitting with his cabinet. They know that the principle of one person, one vote in local government is the correct principle. But the internal fears among them that by accepting the principle they will divide their own party, they will lose control of local government in large parts of Western Northern Ireland. They calculate explicitly in the cabinet what you're not supposed to do in the cabinet, partisan political uh, calculations. The civil service should be nowhere near that. We know they thought about it, but they couldn't do it. Um, so they did have opportunities to reform, but, but I have some sympathy for, for they had built a system which they could no longer control and modify. We're running rapidly out of time, so a lot of things will probably come up, things that we're not going to get onto, like Brexit from questions, just to um, move on to questions. But there are a couple of things I want to discuss before we move to that. Um, two clear things that I'm, I'm, I'm going to compress a, a few ideas here. One is the um, analysis of Northern Ireland um, not having been um, that bad with housing, uh, the Northern Ireland Housing Trust, and that, uh, that actually it was a relatively small number of local authorities that behaved reprehensibly. Of course, the very fact that you are citing in the book um, extensively um, the you know, the statistics are very important, the statistics of the patent gerrymandering in, in London Derry. Um, I'm wondering what that part of, how you respond to the argument that actually there was a lot of good stuff going on before any honourable things going on before anybody was forced to do it, or before anybody foresaw the, 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 the different. And I, yeah, I'll, I'll start with that one. Sure. I think a lot of benign improvements were occurring, particularly after World War II. And those were largely driven by uh, the post-war atmosphere throughout Europe 
in which there was a social democratic consensus on a model for the future that would not be like the interwar years. Full employment, full support for uh, primary and secondary education, opening up a university, universal health care, universal welfare systems. This made Northern Ireland very attractive. You can't hear me at the back, so. I hope you've heard some of what I've said. <laughs> So, in, in that general post-war atmosphere, Northern Ireland was much more attractive to Northern Catholics, lots of them, than what happened in the South. It did not have the same infrastructural capacity to implement uh, the post-war welfare state. So, that's the atmosphere in which lots of Catholics, who were roughly 10 years older than me, grew up in one of rising expectations rising improvements in their material standard of living, expanded education opportunities, and they come up against a traditional sectarian system that refuses to reform. And incidentally, it was not just um, London Dairy Corporation. It was primarily the electoral discrimination took place where it was necessary. In other words, in those areas in which Protestants were not an electoral majority. So you, that's almost proof of the intentionality of the system. It was applied where it was needed. Well, I think we agree that there were marvelous and lost opportunities in the 1960s. It didn't have to go in the direction uh, things transpired. Um, we, if there had not been uh, early loyalist violence, if there had not been the determination on the part of some Republicans to relaunch armed struggle, if there had not been the arrival of a British army applying counterinsurgency techniques that it had uh, recently applied in Aden and Yemen and were entirely inappropriate for a peace function, if all of those things hadn't occurred between 68 and 70, we might not have had the spiral that we did. Okay, well I think there's a, 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 a this is a, a sort of in a, in a sense leads on to that if, if one is to think about, I want to ask about victimhood, um, yeah. victimhood, victimhood mentalities. Um, if one is to think of Ulster Catholics um, and their legitimate grievance in the 1620s, it's not, it's not, a, not, a, not a difficult one to, to explain. When I, as I said, when I read the early 1730s newsletters and you see all these names and you don't see many you know, Irish names, it's not difficult to understand the grievance. It's not difficult to understand the grievance in the early 1900s. It's not difficult to understand the grievance in 1968 when you're dealing with incompetence and that kind of thing. Um, you're I, dealing with more than incompetence. You're dealing with an institutionalized system yes. of disorganizing your opponents. I, I'm saying I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm saying that even when you have people who might be trying to do something about that, you discuss different personalities like sure. O'Neill and so on. Um, there's weakness, there's potential incompetence, there's, there's inertia, there's some unclean things that you, that you refer to. Um, complacency, whatever. Um, one of the things that I think there's a lot of anger in unionism at the moment, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, I can identify one, uh, which is that 
the balance of rights and wrongs in the 1960s is very different, potentially, to the balance of rights and wrongs in the late 1990s, when you look at the trouble statistics. You discuss things about what constitutes terrorism and of civilians, and that's a, a very, very complicated one. Let me give you an example of why it's complicated. Um, in Fermanagh, I believe it's 114 dead. I think it's 99 killed by provisionals. I think it's um, um, uh, two blokes or something. It's 101 are provisionals, including on the government themselves. Um, it's virtually, there's just virtually no retaliation. It's the most extraordinary. It's not the same all over Northern Ireland, patently. I think there's three loyalist killings, there's soldiers kill two people. It's a very extraordinary thing. Now, that is technically not terrorism because the provisionals were mostly killing UDR men and sticking to the rules. It mostly wasn't Exco and Bond, I think. But the present perception of that would be it was sectarian. That's, that's the first thing. Um, and then if you look at the numbers of the um, 2100, of the 3700 killed in troubles being uh, uh, killed by Republican, I, I, we, as a newspaper we do use the term terrorist, and 1100 killed by loyalist terrorists, and 360 or so killed by the state. Now, we could spend all night talking about collusion and things. I think the numbers of incidents of collusion were, were small, um, Republican sets hundreds. But anyway, for even putting that aside, the bare figures with a much greater number of, of dead, I would argue that very few societies on earth would have tolerated that, maybe Norway or some very advanced Scandinavian societies, and that most societies where there is a dominant more powerful group, rightly or wrongly, um, would have um, led to a much greater number of deaths if you were to look at Israel, for example. Um, and what, I, what, I'm, what I'm getting at is this. Um, what's extraordinary in, from a unionist perspective is how it seems that nationalism is advancing a, a, a narrative of having been a victim of a brutal state, talk about counterinsurgency, um, uh, the, the, the speed with which collusion. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on that. Um, whether what I'm getting to be blunt about it is how has nationalism become stuck in a victimhood? that it can't even see that, whereas there's hundreds of years of very legitimate grievances, that after 69, there's a much less obvious case when reforms come in very rapidly. O'Neill's talking about significant reforms. It's taken out of their hands, particularly after 72. And that's what I'm wondering about. So you, we, we should always distinguish between reforms which affect people's material life opportunities and reforms that are related to full citizenship and security systems. So you can make an argument that a lot of the demands of the civil rights movement were met early. But what did not happen was substantial reform of the police. You will recall the Hunt Report, you will recall uh, the decision to disband the B specials and to replace them with the Ulster Defence Regiment. Now had that project been properly implemented, if there had been really substantial police reform, then in all sorts of ways, Northern Catholics' experience of the, the northern part of the island would have been much better. It didn't happen. You got a combination of some reforms with um, a, a manifest failure to reform the security system, which really did not occur until the Patton Report and afterwards. So you can say particularly with regard to equal funding of education uh, from 92, from the Fair Employment Act, which doesn't become uh, meaningful and effective until the 1989 Act. You can write a story of slow, incremental reform 
administration. But that's combined with uh, a security policy <coughs> proves to be ineffective. But I sympathize with one part of your analysis. If the British state had been truly overwhelmingly repressive, as it was in dealing with the 1798 rebellion, then there would be no persisting rebellion. It could have been crushed. Uh, so the British state was inhibited from doing that, both because it's moved on in terms of the values of human rights that it's not only supposed to respect, and simultaneously, Northern Irish Catholics were citizens of the United Kingdom, and that places inhibitions on what a modern democratic state can do, even if among their ranks there are people organizing the assassination of police officers, the assassination of political figures, uh, bombing of commercial enterprises, and so on. Uh, and I would ask you this, do you have a successful um, policy for counterinsurgency in a liberal democratic environment when you have an historically aggrieved ethnic or religious minority? Do you know of a, a successful implementation? You referred to Israel. I am astonished. No, no one can argue that Israel has successfully created an environment in which its collective security is guaranteed for the future. They have uh, created an abundance. Am I not defending Israel? I, I didn't say you yeah, were. Yeah, but right. the, your, the British state could have behaved like yeah, Israel, and that would have been even worse. So I, I recognize, I think fairly and scrupulously in the book, the, the comparative restraint of the British state uh, in the period after 74, um, 75. Certainly by comparison with the treatment of Irish insurrectionaries during the War of Independence. So, I don't think we're too far apart on this. When I've written a little bit about this, quite a lot actually, because I write a lot about legacy, um, what I say is this, that, 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 that not, not, not so much the rights, let me get, illustrate this way, there is a, at least a moral argument after 1972, after the meeting in London, at least a moral argument for, um, and then and that breaks down, it doesn't go anywhere, and bloody Friday happens, you, you cite Jerry Adams's um, defense of bloody Friday, but let's just imagine if you reject that defense for taking out IRA leaders with a rocket, um, just saying, right, this is, this is not wrong, and it's the way, you know, in shooting down terrorists in, 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 um, when they're attacking cities is, is, is just expected across Western Europe. And I'm saying that the counter-argument to that would be it would have led to perpetual war, a disastrous Israeli situation, radicalizing um, a national stand. My point is that now, unbelievably, Britain not having done anything like that, um, it's being depicted retrospectively as brutal. And that's, that's, that's what it was. Well, it, it was brutal, but not as brutal as it might have been. I, I will accept that. that, in case, that it was but as, as brutal as it was capable of being, no. Um, I agree. But you, you have to, uh, I think, think comparatively here. Um, one of the successes of being relatively restrained and having a Republican leadership that was not collectively and regularly assassinated or decapitated was that after a time you had a movement which was coherent and disciplined and could be bargained with and negotiated with. So we, we've had a relatively, it's not perfect, but we've had a relatively ex successful exit 
from violence with negotiation of political institutions. So if you compare our situation with the Spanish, a Spanish state executed uh, ETA operatives engaged in large-scale assassinations, separated um, Basque um, guerrillas or terrorists in separate prisons, prevented their collective self-organization in prison. And the consequence was that they were left without an organization that they could bargain with. And they got more random violence, more extremism. One set of leaders would succeed, the others would be decapitated or moved elsewhere. And they were basically dealing with a hydra. And they still have an institutional mess. One of the fortunate byproducts of a, a relatively liberal response by the British state was at the end of it there was a, an organization, the IRA, tempered by the, the knowledge that it could not win, institutionally organized through jails, with a whole cadre of people who were not dead but were outside and who wanted a way forward that was not militaristic. So there were benign consequences, even from the point of view of security, uh, and sorry, long-run future political institutions that flowed from a relatively more benign strategy. We, we, we are over time, but I'm going to ask one more question before we throw it open to the audience, because it's fascinating. We could just talk for hours. Um, and I, I think where we disagree on that, we, we agree on a lot of things. I, I would greatly, uh, to, to a much greater extent, um, uh, advertise the um, restraint of Britain and the extraordinary situation where known people, uh, no fanatical murderers, there were very few fanatical murderers, by the way, I'm not saying that of all, of all um, paramilitaries, but a number of fanatical people in Turkey were easily able to um, um, withstand the criminal justice system, and really very rarely killed, although well, later in the, in the early 90s it changes a bit. But We, we could get into what, what a battery here, but uh, the Glenan gang and key personnel involved in that uh, as far as I know, and I think I'm very careful on the statistics here, they are held culpable for more killings than any other individual small unit. And the question that arises there is to what extent, uh, it's, it, the question is to what extent, not no uh, relationship, uh, not maximum relationship, to what extent was there substantial collusion by the police at a low level or at a higher level in allowing that unit to operate so extensively for so long. Funny enough, it was a very senior RBC man who cited to me Glenan as one of the, the most um, 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 uh, violent um, groups that he um, he was, somebody who was putting people behind bars, he wasn't special about sure, anything like that, um, that he had to deal with in his career. Um, the last question I'm going to ask before I throw this open to the audience, because we haven't really touched on so many um, things that we could, because it is, it, it is so, so interesting is consociation, if I have the pronunciation correct. Have it perfectly correct. Um, I, 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 I'm just going to get to the quick, because I wanted to ask about three or four questions on this. I'll ask one. Um, are we now seeing profound problems with a system of mandatory coalition, um, which is a, 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 a um, put in place to, to try to um, um, have a, a fair system? Now, again, from the unionist perspective, it would be that one party knows that it has to be part of the process, doesn't care whether it works. Sinn Féin and um, can make non-negotiable demands, which a unionist would say is intolerable. But I don't even want you just to answer that unionist critique. I'm wondering what you think about the, just the idea that a mandatory coalition 
is, 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 is ultimately is, is not sustainable even if people are showing goodwill forever. So let's, let's break it down. For those of you not familiar with the um, technical political science term, consociation. The microphone has gone where? <laughs> Thank you. A consociation is the political scientist's term for a power-sharing system that recognizes four principles. Parity, equality between the communities. Proportionality, proportional representation of each group, proportional expenditure on that, that group. Autonomy, self-government for the group in those areas of their culture that are most important to them. In the North, that's education. And lastly, veto rights. Now, rigid consociations create veto rights that make it extremely difficult to make collective decisions easily. Now, we built in the Good Friday Agreement between us a consociational system domestically. Nothing in that system absolutely prevents its internal reform. And I would object to the term mandatory coalition if it is taken to imply that all parties have to be in government. The mandatory feature of the Northern Ireland arrangements is that the two first ministers must come from two different communities. As reformed at St Andrews, two of the three, including the others. I have written myself that consociational systems can organically decay, particularly if people resist the old communal identities, begin to mix on a much more substantial scale, uh, refuse to identify with the historic blocks, become, if you like, a third grouping, defined principally by denial of relationship to the other two collective blocks. Now, we've seen the others wax and wane over uh, the last 30-year um, period. We are seeing currently a period of waxing on the part of the others. There are two ways of interpreting that. One is it's a response within the unionist community to extremely bad leadership over European questions. I, I believe we share a common perspective on that. That's part of the story. On the cultural Catholic side, it may well show also some people growing up refusing to identify with either the SDLP or Sinn Féin. What we don't know yet is whether that other bloc will uh, solidify and be coherent and be vehemently anti-consociational. If you listen to what the Alliance Party says, what they would like is to create a centrist coalition, in effect code for excluding the DUP and Sinn Féin. Uh, that's a possible future direction. That's the way politics might go, especially if both the DUP and Sinn Féin were to lose significantly. But the reason we have a consociational system is it provides collective insurance for both groups, for unionists who may well be becoming a minority, that they will have a veto right over key things that affect their collective interests. So I would predict over time, it's already happening in effect, in a way that the DUP extensively overuses the petition of concern, a unionist orientation towards preserving the system as a last bastion of uh, control. 
we may see over time the other bloc combined with nationalists agreeing that they might want to uh, get rid of the rigid features of our consociational system, partly because on all social policy questions there's a consensus between alliance and the nationalists, including the republicans. So one can imagine a world in which a new majority would emerge of the others and the nationalists who would disagree with unionists on most questions of social policy. And in that world, unionists will be the strongest champions of a consociational system. Why is this important, apart from the, what, you, what you basically already know? If Irish reunification comes on the agenda, in my view, it will towards the end of this decade. One of the very important questions is what model of Irish reunification should the government of Ireland propose and what model of Irish reunification should Northerners seek to advance? And one key question is, should the Irish state simply integrate Northern Ireland, dissolve it, remove the border, get rid of the Northern Ireland Assembly and the Executive, and through a mixture of fusion and integration, build a common system across the island, Model 1? Or should they, should the government of Ireland should Northern Nationalists instead advocate, and should Unionists think this their best option, should they transfer the institutions of the Good Friday Agreement into a Northern Ireland Parliament that would be inside a unified Ireland? That's allowed for in the Constitution of Ireland as it's currently set up. Those are the only two major options that are allowed for <coughs> under the existing constitutional arrangements in Ireland. A federal Ireland would require the replacement of the constitution in the south. A confederation would probably also require it. So I think in the decade ahead, we're going to have continuing debate over, shall we tweak the consociational system? And if so, in whose interests will that be? And is that the basis, possibly, for securing Protestant, Unionist, and British rights in a reconfigured art, and that's an open question. Okay, before I put this up to questions, um, I have a, a yes no for this one. Okay. Sorry. Um, do you, I do promise you, not do to you say no, this is the, this is crystal ball gazing. Um, do you think there will be Irish unity by 2040? I think it's a very high probability. Okay. Um, so interesting, and I, I, by the way, I had an awful lot more things that I wanted to ask, and I only had um, about 15 questions, which I thought would be about five minutes per question. We didn't get anywhere near them, but that's because it was so interesting. Um, so what, 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 what I'd like to say is, I, I, although I, I'm sure this room is full of, of, of fascinating stories, um, we just don't have time for more than a, a question. So if you want to make a statement, try to think of it as a short question, so that you kind of hint at what you think in the question, because we just won't get through it otherwise. We only have, I think, Jerry, can we sustain 15 minutes? Um, thanks. There'll be a riot if they don't have more time. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, the first time I saw was this man here with glasses, yes. My question goes, both of you talked about the 17th century and the 18th century being very much a Protestant Catholic, even at that stage. My question is, um, at the end of the Nine Years' War, you know, Sullivan, which is the southern side, argued the biggest army against them 
were Catholics against Catholics. These four-fifths were Catholics against Catholics. What was more the influence was the opportunities offered by England, the English rule, the opportunities that came through. You jump forward 50, 60 years, and you have the um, uh, Anglican at the top, the Catholic in the middle, and the Presbyterians at the bottom of the social structure. So they were sandwiched in between. So it wasn't a Protestant-Catholic thing. It was very much uh, those who were in Ireland to live and have their children in Ireland versus those who wanted to take finances back to England or make their fortunes in Ireland. Coming right up until about the end of the 17th century, it is much better perhaps to look at Ireland not in terms of Protestant Catholic, but where control was run from. Um, much has happened in America with the American War of Independence. And it wasn't a religious thing, it was a... And just to, to pan into a question very quickly. So the question is, do we approach Ireland properly by dealing with a Protestant Catholic thing before 1800? So, volume one of this book is devoted to an argument that colonialism is a better framing of Irish history before the 20th century than the sectarianized people's perspective. Though obviously it would be foolish to try and attempt any history of Ireland which avoided treating sectarian questions. And um, your, your basic historic point is that prior to the Ulster plantations, there is a different pattern of relationships. The crown, and how does it control the island of Ireland? That becomes complicated when there is a distinct novel population of English and Scots settlers in Ulster, which transforms matters. That's a different pattern of colonialism. And I, I would say, in, in very short answer to that, that it's um, overwhelmingly um, a Catholic Protestant thing, even though I'm well aware of the fact that Francis Joy's grandson was hanged um, in, in, in Belfast um, as a United Irishman, which incidentally is a very interesting thing in early newspaper history, because um, it's reported um, neutrally. It must have been a very, you're talking about repression, gosh, uh, must have been a very difficult time to, uh, uh, and a very difficult thing. I think the, fam the family, you know, the family did not own the paper then, but they'd given it up three years earlier. Nonetheless, what a difficult thing to report. Early balances of freedom and press freedom and, and contentious areas of censorship. Sorry, I think we have another question here. Uh, yes, it's, uh, it's very interesting to hear about the 17th century, but if I lived in the 17th century as a Catholic, I would not, not have had a vote. I would not be represented in any court of any importance. So therefore to say that it was lovely that the Catholics were getting all right at that stage was lovely. Fast forward to 1966 and 67, and clearly education and the freedom of education and the rights to education came along and it forced through, uh, in my own lifetime, uh, the events of civil rights and, uh, and freedom. Uh, I hear what you say and I respect your view. I find it very naive to say that it was going to be alright if it only just ran the course of, of history and we win it all right here. I'm not for one second suggesting that revolution was the way forward, but it was world opinion regarding that brought things forward. Not any British government, but world opinion and those people standing up. What I really would like to do, history will repeat itself if you do not learn the lessons from it. The lessons uh, that I always realised was that to listen to everyone. 
I'm so glad to hear from an excellent presentation tonight the word consensus. It is the only way forward for this country. Uh, it may also be that we need to have education either streamlined or whatever, but we still have to offer, offer the opportunity of people to make the choice. But please don't be naive and saying it's going to be all right. At least that's what I hear from your conversation. Well, you, you, I, and I deeply respect yes. your opinion you. And, and you can gather that I've come from perhaps a different, uh, a different community. But what I hear at the end of it is the historian is telling us the way forward. The historian is saying that we have to look to these models that are working elsewhere and to respect that maybe, just more than maybe, we didn't get it right beforehand. Because of a chronic pressing time issue, um, I, I have to cut you short. And because of the time issue, and probably because of me not expressing myself very well, very, to, to, very obviously I was not saying things were good for Ulster Catholics in the 1730s. I'm talking about the yeah. 1960s. Yeah. yeah, but you started off by talking about the 1750s. You said, um, and to, to be clear about, in fact, I was in fact saying that Catholics don't exist, effectively don't exist in the paper in the 1730s, which is a very interesting time, which is obviously an appalling state of affairs. Um, but before I move on, do you want to, is there a question you want to ask? No, no just, just how realistic are we to, to think that this time round we're going to get to a position of what do you see it, it, further intervention is required. We've required American intervention and other intervention from, from different Irish groupings and other groupings and whatever. Do you see something dramatic coming in the next two, three, four months or years to bring about that situation that you talk about I, the years down I, the road? I think we're going to see playing out a, a fundamental question. The withdrawal of the United Kingdom from the European Union and the special front stop arrangements for Northern Ireland. No one knows precisely how they're going to play out. But those arrangements have uh, potentially dramatic consequences. They could work materially badly for everybody in Northern Ireland. They could work very well for Northern Ireland, in which case they will cement a disposition to be oriented towards the EU and towards Ireland. There could be a mixed picture. But what has definitely happened and may, may persist is a clear break between the Conservative Party and the principal representative of Ulster Unionism. And that means, in a very important sense, in the decade ahead, Unionists are going to have to think of what, what their strategy is in the period ahead. How do they persuade, in the decade ahead, cultural Catholics to persist with the Union? Because basically what's going to happen in the decade ahead is the persistence of the Union is no longer in the hands of Protestants. They require the support of cultural Catholics for the Union to continue. And as they know, not all cultural Catholics are nationalists. Uh, but their behaviour, their leadership behaviour, over the European question, has sent a lot of cultural Catholics back into very traditional positions. So they are exactly pursuing the wrong strategy, in my view, if they want to get cultural Catholics' long-term commitment to the Union. That was a long-winded answer. Well, what, what I would say, just very quickly before we move on to the next question, is that um, I don't think that one can overstate the, the momentousness of the last few years. Um, and I, of the many momentous things that have happened, the, 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 the scale of the, of the really very poor result for the Unionists in recent election, very poor result for Sinn Féin, um, 
perhaps the most momentous was Middle England, as I call it, had never been put to the test on the Union. It's surprising in many respects during the Troubles, it was sort of put to the test, 800 soldiers dying is the kind of thing where people just say, no, we're not having this, get rid of these people. That didn't happen. But it had never been put to the test, almost in the poll, it was, almost, it was put to the test certainly in, in polling questions. And for not a single Conservative MP, I remember 20, you cite the 47 MPs who voted against the Twenty, only 20 of them, somebody said to me 20. I said, no, no, it was more than 20, it was about 30 of the 47 were, 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 were Tories. It was 20, uh, but it was at least 20 opposed the Anglo Irish Agreement. Not one, not a single one um, opposed the border in the Irish Sea. That's going to take decades for unionists to understand. It's not a surprising thing to me, but um, so it's huge. Uh, sorry, next question. I'm, I'm, I'm so sorry to stop statements, but we will not get through questions. Okay, um, in 1931, I think it was 10 years after the formation of the state, um, Catholic and Protestant workers told the proletariat marched through Belfast. They got together, things weren't good, the strict hours weren't good, uh, and they got together, they joined up, frankly, I like the government that you have Catholics and Protestants. Working class joined up. They marched through Belfast, led by bands, uh, and because the, the bands only played their own sectarian tunes, the only tune you could think of that was somehow appropriate then was yes, so we have, have no bands. Yeah, which seemed appropriate as well. My question is: at that time, it frightened this brand new government that the Catholics and Protestants, the workers, would join together and maybe demand better from their government, which was perfectly reasonable to do. Do you think that now that we're looking down the teeth of Brexit that that may encourage the old sectarian politics that we've seen here, the last election we've seen where people have broken away in some from the tribal voting patterns. Do you think that Brexit may uh, maybe push that forward and that the people will now get away from the sectarian politics and maybe demand better, uh, and, and that may lead to a border poll, it may lead to all sorts of things, but do you think that that, that may be uh, a, sort of a catalyst for change here? Uh, I think it's already unfolding in that way, but we have to be cautious. Um, this, the traditional nationalist unionist cleavage is not identical to the cleavage on European questions. There are Protestants and unionists who voted Remain. There are small numbers of Catholics, smaller numbers of Catholics, who voted the proportionally smaller numbers of Catholics. But if we look at the last set of elections, and I'm now talking since the June 2016 referendum, as you all know, the outcome of that locally was a 56% Remain vote. If you add up the votes for Remain parties in all of the recent elections, it's consistently at 55 56%. So there is a, a Northern Ireland majority which is pro-European. Now, whether that will persist, given the development of the Brunstone, who knows? Whether um, the Brunstone will work badly and get everybody riled up against it, producing a, a potential uh, revulsion towards it, I think that's improbable, but it, it's conceivable. It's unknown. But that cleavage, so far, is primarily one in which nationalists are remainers and unionists are leavers. If that switches, particularly among the young, and if the young are advocates and enthusiasts of getting back into Europe, 
then there could be a, a quick transformation. We'll see. It's open. I, I don't think it's in any sense decided. And, and I would answer that very quickly by saying the two most extraordinary results in the recent election, well, actually FOIL was pretty incredible, um, but uh, uh, not North Belfast, which I think was profoundly tribal still, like for Madame Sartre, um, but were South Belfast and North Down, where what you're talking about is, uh, and I know North Down very, very well, and I know the numbers in North Down very well, I've been, I can cite some off the top of my head, and I, I just couldn't see Ferry getting there. I couldn't see him getting there. And for him to get 18,000, um, Alliance actually traditionally didn't do that well in, in North Down, was, was groundbreaking. So that, and I know these people very well because I know friends from school who began to think about <laughs> not liking the UK when it wasn't on their radar. It's a very atypical group of people. It's, you know, um, professional middle classes, but yes, it's the short answer that's happening. And um, we're moving towards the back. And a quick question, please. Just, just very quickly. First of all, I'd like to know professors have correct Professor. I, I am a professor of political science. So you can call me Brendan if you want to. <laughs> so I, 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 I talk about what I mean. First of all, did you criticize um, President Obama whenever he sent the American forces to take out Osama bin Laden? And if not, why not? Second thing I would make is this the one thing you did ignore, you, that you did ignore in your presentation was the importance of the 11 plus to everybody in Northern Ireland. I'm anti-Queens because of the 11 plus. Let me make it clear, I'm a Protestant and a Unionist. Uh, I make no apology for this. There was no money in my family to send me to Queens. Just the same way as one of the chiefs of the Supreme Court in England uh, was there at the same time as me. There was no discrimination as far as I was concerned. He, I had no advantage over him. He had no advantage over me. And therefore, from that point of view, and the last point I would make is this, and make it clear in the apology. In 1972, the British government uh, administration took Jerry Adams and Martin McGuinness and other people over to England. They adopted the same tactics with the IRA as they did with the communist infiltration in Malaya, which I'm sure you're probably familiar with. And how did they deal with them? They brought them over and they dealt with them. And indeed, the truth of the matter is this, many people in the Unionist side are convinced that from that time on, apart from one exception, namely Roy Mason, the British establishment was intent on getting rid of Northern Ireland and they allowed the IRA to slaughter Unionist people in the border area to bring about that. As I said, there's so many fascinating stories in this road. In fact, we just can't get into the same. Do you have anything you want to say quickly in response to, to any of those observations? I fully supported the assassination of Osama bin Laden. I see no inconsistency in that position and with my other positions. But I don't think it's a topic for here. Okay. Um, I, I, and here there's a question down in Nesbitt. I see that. I don't know. Thank you. Oh, dear. Yeah. Thank you. Sorry. 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 Thank you. Fascinating indeed. Just very brief anecdote at the start. I come at this from a moderate unionist perspective. I was involved in politics and the late 1960s. In fact, I remember a meeting in the 8th of July, 1969, when I was trying to get the party to be moderate. And the boy at the park shouting at me and saying this, that, and the other. And why I remember it was the 8th of July, 1969? 
I looked at him and said, it's all right for you. I'm getting married in the morning. <laughs> and that got the same little laughter as now. But what I want to say is, that's my background, being mother. Your initial quotation about a Catholic parliament for a Catholic people and a Protestant parliament for a Protestant people. The actual word, and words are important, it was a Catholic parliament and a Catholic people. A Protestant parliament and a Protestant people. And 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 for can be slightly different. And what I found statistically with unemployment, there were problems with Protestantism in the south as there were with Catholics in the north. So it wasn't just all one-sided problematical area. That's the first point. Second point, wind forward, and I just wish your comment on it, wind forward the 1960s. And we've heard of the famous phrase, Seamus Mallon, Sunningdale for slow learners, you're going to the 70s, 80s. And I asked the question, the dynamics then, the SDLP wished, yes, possibly to be in government, but they needed the Council of Ireland. Unionists may be prepared to have considered the Council of Ireland, but they needed the status to be recognised and the Articles 2 and 3 to be changed. These were dynamics that were difficult. Faulkner took big risks, he lost many votes, but at the same time the South did not change the Constitution until 1998. They played around with words of status, what is status, or what's not the URI position, it's the de facto position. So is there not a little bit of learning to have needed to have been done by the southern government as much as unionists in the north? And I come to the last point where you ask the question, how do you persuade cultural Catholics to remain part of the United Kingdom? Have you any view whenever the Soviet Union was dissipated? There were lots of minorities. Estonians had Russians, Czechs had Slovaks, Armenians and Azerbaijan. Northern Ireland wasn't one bit unique. And we're way over time, so Brendan. And the problems are Brendan. So, the final word is very simple. Recognize no, no, but, the right, Sorry, Dermot, I'm just clear. We're way over time. Sorry, so, I can't have said. Dermot, I assure you that you will benefit from reading the three volumes. <laughs> <laughs> Volume 2 is devoted both to showing the nature of the control system in Northern Ireland built by the Austrian Union's party and with an analysis of the development of the Irish Free State. I carefully examine what is now uh, something of an orthodoxy, the idea that there was equivalence in the maltreatment of minorities on both sides of the border. There wasn't. And there were reasons for that. The straightforward reason was that the minority in the South was a lot smaller, and therefore it could be treated more generously. Secondly, the minority in the South, though this of course is not true of everybody within that minority, but that minority was on average significantly better off than the local population. So we're talking about two very different minorities. Uh, one which was structurally and historically disadvantaged already at the start of Northern Ireland. 
the other, which was a formerly dominant minority. And that minority included a very significant number of people who had been home rulers, who had a strong Irish collective identity, not an Ulster Unionist identity. And for that reason, the relationships in the two parts of the island were not identical. We do not know how well a unified Ireland would have coped with a much larger minority. We can't run that counterfactual experiment. I, I, I think time one more question, and it has to be short, and this is the first time I saw a short one, yes. really short. A very short question. Um, as you know, we've had the decade of anniversaries, and we're almost weary with it now, but we're coming up to the centenary of partition uh, this year, and possibly yes. next year. Do you think we chose the wrong model when we chose the six rather than nine? Because if you did allude earlier, there was a, a, an even balance in terms of religion and political identity. Did we choose the wrong model a hundred years ago? Uh, I think that's a, it's a very good question. I think I gave the answer already. There were two better partitions, roughly speaking, a four-county one or a radical boundary commission uh, result that would have produced a much more homogeneous Northern Ireland in the northeast. And second, and that would have been two more homogeneous units with roughly uh, equally proportional minorities on both sides of the border. And the other option, historic Ulster preserved with a roughly equal balance between the communities. But it would have been vital to have proportional representation to avoid a rather quick tipping point uh, in which Ulster Protestants would quickly have been outnumbered by Ulster Catholics, who would have then voted for reunification. And I'll give you an instinctive response to, that, to what I think about that, which is that I am not persuaded that a more precise, uh, more Protestant state by removing um, uh, West Bank and Foyle and, and so on and so would would have worked because um, I think it would have exacerbated the worst tendencies of unionism. And I think that um, one of the things that we do a lot of coverage in RHI and so on, it's very easy for people, in it, and I don't want to describe RHI as a sort of unionist thing, it's a very complex problem that my colleague Simon Pride has written a stunning book on. Um, but I think that complacency and, 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 and stupidity and, um, uh, are all the more likely uh, when you have, I mean, it was decades of, 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 of one party rule. And it would have been all the more so if it had been a more precise thing. But anyway. But the, the core answer would have been better not to have had a partition at all. <coughs> and I, that's, that's us for time. So thank you very much. Well, many thanks to Brenton and Ben, and indeed to all who participated this evening for a most interesting and informative event and discussion, which of course doesn't end uh, this evening. Uh, I think this is an example, a uh, wonderful example, of uh, one of the reasons why the Priory in Banbur exists. And it's also a reminder of how important it is for those of us in the Royal Irish Academy that we come out more and bring the activities of the Academy to a wider audience and not just confine ourselves to Dublin and Belfast. So, I think that's wonderful. Uh, 
you may know, some of you will know, that during the, the 1960s and 1970s, the Cerebites here in Van Berg, uh, published an annual review, uh, a journal, covering the arts and social sciences. It was called Everyman, and later was called uh, Aquarius. It was edited by the then prior uh, Michael Farrell, and it aired and analysed the, the various preoccupations of Ireland at the time, north and south, both religious and secular. And later, an anthology of the outstanding contributions to the journal was published in a book form, and it was called Creative Commotion. And as a small mark of appreciation and thanks to our to the protagonists this evening, uh, our librarian Ursula Monaghan will present them each with a copy of the anthology and also with a copy of uh, Noel Doerr's uh, treatise on Sunningdale, which was referred to earlier and which was published by the Royal Irish Academy. So Ursula, if you would do that, we'd be very good. Thank you.